My first real understanding of a notion of paradise didn't come to me from the years of Sunday school I attended in the Catholic Church. It didn't come to me from the Bible or any sacred text. It came from my musician father and his rendition of the song Paradise by the late folk musician John Prine that he used to sing to my sister and I as kids. Are there any John Prine fans here this morning? <laughs> the song is sung from the perspective of an adult Prine reflecting back on his childhood in western Kentucky in a land he calls paradise. A land where his parents came from, where the green river flowed and he and his friends roamed and played. All this before the local coal mining company would come and as he sings, haul it all away. In the end, this song about paradise is a scathing indictment of the coal industry's environmental and economic decimation of that land. Paradise in the song is the town of Paradise, Kentucky, but my young ears didn't know that. I just imagined Prine was talking about a kind of heaven on earth, a place where green rivers flowed, where friends roamed carefree and wild, and a place where the land and its people were forsaken by injustice and greed. Paradise was all of these things. As we reflect on universalism this month, the idea of paradise, of heaven and salvation will come up again and again. And the universalist message was that all people, all people are deserving of God's love and will be called to paradise in the afterlife, which was this radical notion of the time. But for the universalists, this notion would expand. Salvation wasn't just in the hereafter, it was imminent. It was right around the river's bend. It was all around us waiting. And it was our charge as a people of faith to nurture and grow it in our midst, to ensure that injustice and oppression does not have the last word. This was certainly the message that I received growing up with that song in my ears and a message that would expand in my own faith life as I found Unitarian Universalism and particularly the Universalist side of our tradition. So today we are going to reflect some on this legacy, the ways our Universalist forebears strove to live out a social gospel of heaven on earth, the places they failed, and what this message might mean for us and how we carry it into the future. The reading Marie and I just shared comes from the book Saving Paradise, how Christianity traded love of this world for crucifixion and empire. A hefty book by UU theologian Rebecca Ann Parker and Rita Nakashima Brock. Their book explores the early Christian origins of this notion of paradise 
and their research uncovers how early Christians filled their sanctuaries with images that depicted the world as paradise, this world. They tell us about how early Christian communities believed in building communities grounded in love, justice, nonviolence, wisdom, and freedom, and sought to live together as humanity in the garden of God. These early communities created systems of restitution, rehabilitation, and restoration. They acknowledged human failure and took responsibility for how they used power. They saw, Brock and Parker say, paradise as an arena of struggle to gain wisdom and live ethically and responsibly toward others so that love might flourish in their communities and so that they might live now in paradise together. Now, of course, over time, these early notions of paradise on earth would change and Christians would use their theology to build empire, to subjugate and exploit and haul away the potential for freedom and prosperity for the world's people over time. But before all that, paradise wasn't destined to some afterlife. It was here on earth. Every place where they say the spirit was present and love was possible. This notion of heaven on earth, we know, was a central part of the universalist message as well. Hosea Balu, who we learned last week, preached to the Haverhill Universalists at their founding, proclaimed a human right to be happy and that a loving God would not banish any of their children to eternal torment. Ballou believed that this theology of an angry and wrathful God only provided justification for people to imitate tyranny, power, and control. Furthermore, the right of all humankind to be happy, he believed, did not mean happiness for one's self only, but the collective happiness for all, a charge for each of us to promote the common good, to work for justice and ease suffering on this good earth. To this end, many universalists participated in the large social movements of their day. Aidan Ballou, a cousin of Hosea's, was a fierce abolitionist and founded a utopian community on the principles of what he called practical Christian socialism, a socialism that he understood as a state whereby individuals could only realize higher good when they were in right relationship with each other, and that this harmonic social order was possible on earth. Ballou's community would harbor enslaved people fleeing the South, and his views on nonviolence would influence Leo Tolstoy, Gandhi, and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Universalist women were central and tireless figures in the suffrage movement. Olympia Brown was one of the first women to be ordained in this country and once delivered 200 addresses on behalf of women's suffrage in less than five months. 
Mary Livermore spoke in Universalist congregations throughout the country, and despite urgings to avoid controversial issues, she spoke on some of the most divisive gender topics of her day, even establishing a periodical called The Agitator. These efforts seeded a kind of social gospel movement within Universalism that came to a point in the early 20th century when Universalist theologian Clarence Skinner published the 1917 Declaration of Social Principles, a radical for its time treatise that advocated for an economic system that gave everyone their fair share, a social order that assured equal rights for all, and a spiritual mandate to live justly and ethically. These figures were all thorns in the side of the status quo in their own ways. They pushed universalism beyond its singular focus on personal salvation toward a collective responsibility that we all have to fight against oppressive forces in our society. As Brock and Parker said in our reading, entering paradise in this life is, no, is not an individual achievement. It is the gift of communities that train perception and teach ethical grace. But we did not always train our perceptions well, and we did not always struggle ethically. We were imperfect. Aidan Ballou's utopian society did not last long, and his focus on achieving personal morality rather than overturning unjust social systems left out this vital part of the abolition movement. In fact, with the exception of a few, universalists in particular would fail again and again in showing up in any significant way for the abolition movement and later in the struggle for civil rights. Central black universalist figures such as Joseph Jordan, Gloucester Dalton, and Amy Scott would experience racism within the denomination and their own work and ministries with many historians until recently, leaving them out of the history of the faith altogether. Clarence Skinner, another problematic figure, would go on to center universalism as this kind of religion for the whole world that represented and perpetuated harmful and oppressive colonizer thinking. And of course, his advocacy for eugenics was deplorable to say the least, and something that gives me pause in even lifting him up at all. However, these contributions to shifting larger the larger tradition away from a purely individualistic focus on personal salvation toward a faith that puts the incarnation of heaven on earth squarely in our hands is a legacy that we cannot overlook. What I think these universalists got wrong was a failure to really investigate what paradise even was. Their call to transform this earth into heaven was founded on a presumption of a heaven that was centered on their perspectives as individual, white, mostly men of means in their time. 
But paradise isn't about any one person or thing. As Brock and Parker remind us again and again, paradise is community. A community that struggles together, that ensures the worth and freedom of all its members, a community that holds us accountable to living out our deepest values. If we aren't in community with and responsive to those most impacted by social injustice, our views of what paradise is will be limited, and our prescription for its incarnation will fail. In fact, we as individuals don't need to transform the earth into heaven at all. God already did that. Paradise is simply waiting for us in community to live into its promise. In a lot of ways, universalism is having a bit of a revival these days in our denomination. Notions of universal salvation, the inherent worth of all creatures and their right to be free of suffering, is infusing denominational conversations of how we dismantle white supremacy culture and create a more responsive and inclusive faith. Universalists believed that we are all bound up in God's love, interdependent and responsible to each other in that love. A belief that today is expanding the notion of universal salvation toward one of collective and universal liberation. And in this way, today we are called in all our varied experiences, social locations, and perspectives to be present and responsive to the needs of those most impacted by the struggle. People and communities where the forces of greed and injustice threaten to haul away freedom. And in this work to still love this world, the rivers that flow and the joys of roaming and exploring, to still love this world. Or as Reverend Joanne Fontaine Crawford famously said, to love the hell out of it. (laughs) But how do we do this? The world can be a painful place full of heartache and grief and loss, full of injustice and defeat. Paradise does often feel like it is just beyond our grasp. But this is where universalism really opens up for me, because it tells us that we don't do this alone. The gift of this world that was bestowed upon us was a grace-filled blessing to draw sustenance from. These universalist figures all grounded their prophetic works in their faith in God, or what we may more expansively understand as that something greater. The love of God, they believed, was an essential part of the struggle in this life. It never left their side. And in order to feel that love, we must be in the struggle too, to love this world as God loved it, to choose love, to love the hell out of it, to love it powerfully and fiercely and radically, 
This love that compels us to the voting booths, marches with us in the streets against police violence and white supremacy. This love that calls out gender discrimination and fights back against anti-trans legislation. This love that pickets businesses who exploit their workers and a love that writes songs about environmental devastation that a father will one day sing to his child to instill the next generation with a message of justice to pass on. And alongside this, a love that is our refuge at the end of the day, the reminder that we are part of something that never lets us go, a force that we can rest in when we tire. Paradise is all those things, and it is here waiting for us. At the end of John Prine's song, he sings these lines. When I die, let my ashes flow down the green river. Let my soul roll on up to the Rochester Dam. I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise waiting, just five miles away from wherever I am. Just five miles away from wherever I am. For Prine, paradise is the place we come from and return to, a place closer, I would say, than even five miles. It is the earth that holds us in both the beauty and the pain. It is the people we love and the struggles and movements for justice in our own time. It is every place that calls us back from lament and despair where every place where love is possible, and we are reminded we are not alone. It is each other, a community right around the river's bend where the spirit is present and love waits for us, right here, right now, wherever we are. Amen, and may it be so.